0: Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Belglade Alliance Church. Belglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Belglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.belgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. You know, everybody has their random talents. Here's one of mine. I'm fairly good at reading people. Now this wasn't a fact that my boys particularly liked when they were younger. When they were little, they would do something bad, as children tended to do. And then like most little boys, they'd be less than forthcoming about it when asked. Sometimes they played dumb. I don't know what happened. Other times they gave the universal childish answer. I didn't do it. And then I would break out my go-to move. I'd give them the stare You know, the one that says, I know exactly what you did. And I'd follow it up with, now tell me the truth. At which point they'd usually come clean. All right, so how many of you had similar encounters with your children when they were young? Yeah, I thought so. When we think about these exchanges, there's some important things to note. First, our children know exactly what truth is. They know that there's an exact representation of the facts. And in those moments, they know that the truth would probably get them into trouble, which is why they try so hard to obscure it. Our children know exactly what truth is. Second, we know exactly what truth is. Truth is telling it like it is. Truth is the exact representation of the facts. When we question our kids in those moments, the truth is exactly what we want. We know what we're asking for, and so do they. We know exactly what truth is. It's it's intuitive to us, right? And yet we live in an interesting time in history when the nature of truth is largely called into question. That simple and universal experience, tell me the truth, is suddenly being challenged in our society. More and more, the notion of absolute truth, that which is true for everyone, everywhere, for all times, is being rejected. More and more, the idea of truth as a, as a social construction is being accepted instead. In other words, there's a way that me and people like me view reality, a way you and people like you view reality, and a way that they and people like them view reality. Something might be true for us, but it might not be true for them. This is what is becoming acceptable more and more in our culture. More and more, our culture embraces what we call standpoint epistemology. In other words, there are truths that you just cannot know, regardless of the facts that you think you have. You can only know, in part, by other people telling you from their experience. More and more, we see this on television, even, as someone encourages someone else to speak their truth, as if truth was something different from one person to another. And more and more we find the lines of of morality, of moral truth being swept away as more and more moral distinctions are being considered just social constructs instead of universal truth. Challenging others along moral lines is now considered squelching someone's right to express themselves or to create their own arbitrary values. It seems we've come a long way in the de-evolution of truth In fact, Carl F.H. Henry, writing in the 1970s, put it this way. He said, no fact of contemporary Western life is more evident than its growing distrust of final truth and its implacable questioning of any sure word. And in the nearly 50 years since he wrote that, things have only gotten worse. So here's the question for us this morning. Does God care about right and wrong, truth and error? Is it enough for each of us to cling to our truth? Or is it necessary that we acknowledge and embrace the truth? And I believe the book of Acts as a whole answers this question, and I know that our passage today certainly does. It's easy to think of Acts in this particular way, as a, as a historical narrative, retelling the events that transpired over a period of the church's early history. And certainly it is that. However, like the gospels, I believe the Acts is an apologetic book. Not apologetic as in I'm sorry, but apologetic as in providing a defense for the truth. Acts is a book that states the truth in no uncertain terms, defends the truth with evidence, and warns against the dangers of rejecting The truth, And I believe we're going to see that very clearly in our text this morning. But before we jump into our passage for today, I want to remind you of some of the key things that have taken place so we understand what's going on as we enter the text today. And so just to remind you, Jesus has risen from the dead. He spent about 40 days with his disciples, continuing to teach them about the kingdom of God. Before ascending to heaven to be with the Father, he instructed his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and await the Holy Spirit who would empower them to serve as Jesus' witnesses throughout the world. On the day of Pentecost, as Jews from around the Roman world traveled to Jerusalem for a festival, the culmination of the Feast of Weeks, it was here that the Holy Spirit descended in a visible and audible way. And when the disciples were filled with the Spirit, they began to proclaim the wonders of God publicly. And the Jewish travelers from around the world heard these proclamations in their own languages and in their own dialects, and they were amazed. And so amidst this crowd, Peter stood up among them and declared that a turning point had taken place in history. The last days that the prophet Joel wrote of had begun. What the people were witnessing was evidence of that. And so our passage picks up from there in Jerusalem, likely on the temple grounds at Pentecost, to large crowds who had come for the feast. And Peter continues his speech in the text that we're going to read today. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We will pick up in verse 22. Acts 2, starting in verse 22. And the text says this. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. "'freeing him from the agony of death "'because it was impossible for death "'to keep its hold on him. "'David said about him, "'I saw the Lord always before me "'because he is at my right hand. "'I will not be shaken. "'Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. "'My body also will rest in hope "'because you will not abandon me "'to the realm of the dead. "'You will not let your Holy One see decay. "'You have made known to me the paths of life. "'You will fill me with joy in your presence.' Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is still here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not to abandon him to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Why did God orchestrate the events that unfolded at Pentecost? Why did Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, stand up before the crowds and give this speech? Why is it recorded here in the Bible for all subsequent generations? Because God does, in fact, care about the truth. Because it's only through the truth of the gospel that people can be saved. Therefore, Peter had to proclaim it to the crowds in Jerusalem. And this is exactly what we just read about, a gospel proclamation, evangelism sharing the truth of what God has done in Jesus Christ to secure our salvation and provide people an opportunity to respond. So let's talk for a few moments about the gospel. We all need to recognize the importance of this truth claim above all. According to the scriptures, the gospel is not just one way to God, which is one of the things that we hear often in our culture. It is the only way to God. It's not my truth or your truth or the disciples' truth. It's the truth. And so to answer the question, does God care about truth and error, right and wrong? Let's look at some crucial texts about the gospel, this particular truth claim, and see what we can deduce from that. Here's 1 Corinthians fifteen one through 8. Paul's writing to a church that he had planted just four or five years earlier And here's what he says as he reflects back on the gospel that he preached to them. He says this, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Then he appeared to James, and to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So perhaps I should have asked the foundational question before going into this, which is this, what is the gospel? Peter's proclaiming it, we're supposed to be proclaiming it, it is the truth of truths. What is the gospel? Simply stated, all of humanity was under God's wrath for their rebellion against him. All of humanity was subject to the just consequences of their sin. But God loved humanity. And so he sent his son Jesus to die as an atoning sacrifice and to rise again from the dead. And if we believe and surrender to the lordship of Christ, we're saved. This is the gospel. And in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, we see this. We see in verse 3, he says, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance. It's primary importance. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins and rose again. This is essential. This is the gospel apart from this we'd still be subject to the consequences of our sin we'd still be separated from god and under his wrath and the gospel the good news is that god has made a way for our salvation through the death and the resurrection of jesus christ what we also see in this text is that this is a non-negotiable the truth matters we see this in verse 2 he says by this gospel you are saved." If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. It is only by this truth, the truth, by the gospel, that one one becomes saved. There's no other message. There's no other person. There's no other vehicle of salvation. There's no other path. There's no other way. This is it. And so, again, it is by this gospel that you are saved. And so they must hold firmly to it. They must not abandon it. They can't replace it with another truth claim. If they do, they have believed in vain, and they are once again condemned. There is only one gospel that saves, only one way to God. We see this fact illuminated another way in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, the christians at galatia were being duped by false teachers and turning away from the true gospel that was preached to them in order to embrace a false gospel and this is what paul says in galatians 1 6 through 9 he says i am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one that called you to live in the grace of christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. You know, our NIV translation softens the blow of this passage. What does Paul mean, let them be under God's curse? He's saying that if anyone, man, angel, even the Apostle Paul himself, preaches a different gospel, let them be damned. Let them be eternally condemned. Let them be separated from God for all of eternity. It wasn't enough for Paul to just say this once. He said it twice. The gospel is not a truth. It's not my truth or your truth. It is the truth. And God cares about the truth, for it is the salvation of all who believe. As we consider our Acts passage for today, Peter is proclaiming the gospel to the Jews who have gathered at the temple for Pentecost. We read again in verses 23 and 24, Peter says, "'This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross.' but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Again, we see the essential elements of the gospel, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. But Peter wasn't just proclaiming something that was true. He wasn't just letting them know. He wasn't just informing them. He was proclaiming something that was true so that other people would hear it and respond to it. This has been the heart of God throughout history. We see it all throughout the scriptures in phrases such as, hear, O Israel, or he who has ears, let him hear, or you have heard it said, but now I say unto you, we must hear and respond. God cares about the truth, and he cares about our response to the truth. And we see in Peter's words that he's not only proclaiming the truth, but he's exhorting the Jews to believe. We see this in verses 36 through 40. It says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all who the Lord Lord our God will call. And listen to this, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Peter proclaimed the gospel. Peter instructed them how to respond to the gospel. Peter warned them of the dangers of not responding to the gospel. Friends, we see this pattern repeated throughout the book of Acts. And this is our responsibility today in our context as well, as we continue the mission that Peter and the apostles began at Pentecost. However, I want to draw your attention to something else that we see in our text today. Yes, Peter proclaimed the gospel. He stated the truth. However, he also demonstrated the truth of his claims. He didn't just proclaim the gospel, but he also showed the gospel to be true. In fact, he uses evidence, arguments, and reason to persuade the crowds of the truth of the gospel. This makes sense, though, doesn't it, right? Here are Jews from around the Roman world. They may or may not have even heard about Jesus before this day. Even if they had heard about his execution upon arriving in Jerusalem, it could very well be that they heard about that—that that what they heard about him was that he was a messianic pretender, or someone condemned by the Jewish religious leaders as a blasphemer, or the leader of a failed coup to overthrow the Romans, which is why he was crucified. Even if they had heard of his miracles, his healings they'd likely be vastly overshadowed by the events of his passion, which had just recently taken place at this point in history. They likely also had their own views of what the Messiah would do when he arrived, views that were largely shaped by the history and the theology of their time period. They most likely would have envisioned a Messiah who would you know, be a military general, who would overthrow the Romans and establish Israel's independence once again. But this Jesus didn't do that. Let me ask you, why should they believe what they were being told? And so Peter proclaims the gospel. Yes, he does. He interprets what God is doing by sending the Holy Spirit, which they see right before them. And he provides evidence and arguments and reason to believe the truth of the gospel that he had just stated. We see this right at the beginning of our passage today. Peter providing some evidence So what evidence did Peter provide? We see in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Jesus was not a liar or a lunatic. He was not a blasphemer, claiming things about God that just weren't true. He was a man who was accredited by God. God placed his stamp of approval on Jesus, on his words, and on his works. How do we know that? Miracles, signs, wonders. Something uh, you may not know about me, I enjoy magic shows. I enjoy illusions. In fact, I grew up in the 80s watching the David Copperfield specials when they came on TV Uh, Just recently, a couple years ago, Jenny took me to see one of the newer faces in Illusion, Shin Lim, uh, for my birthday. And uh, I am amazed at these kinds of performances. But I know that it's sleight of hand. I know that it's smoke and mirrors. I know that it's Illusion. What Jesus did was not. He healed people who were sick for years or blind or lame since birth. People that others knew. He healed them, and they stayed healed. That's not an illusion. Jesus raised dead people from the grave. Mic drop. Everyone else sit down. That's not magic. That's no illusion. Jesus cast out demons. We even see in these accounts throughout the New Testament Gospels that his opponents truly believed that he had cast out these evil spirits. Now, they tried to claim that he did it by the power of Satan instead of by the power of God, which Jesus demonstrated was nonsense. However, they did not deny the miracle. There was no denying it. Further, Peter and the apostles and hundreds of others stood before this crowd at Pentecost as eyewitnesses to Jesus's resurrection. They saw Jesus again after he had died by that most horrible and vicious form of execution. So what is all of this evidence of? It's evidence of miracles. Human beings cannot perform miracles, not in and of themselves. By definition, a miracle is an act of God. Anytime someone in the Bible performs a miracle, it is God at work in and through them. They could not do it of their own power. They could not do it if God did not want them to do it. So the fact that Jesus performed these well-known miracles was evidence that God, in fact, accredited Jesus. God placed his stamp of approval on him. Everything Jesus claimed about God and about his relationship with God was, in fact, true. And for the record, even ancient Jewish sources claim that Jesus did such things. Uh, the historian Josephus uh, claims that Jesus performed, quote-unquote, startling deeds. The Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, claims that Jesus performed magic. Now a word, that's a word that they chose in order to deny that he was from God, but which nevertheless affirms the truth that he performed amazing deeds. Even critical New Testament scholars today, some of whom would not even be considered Christian and, and most of whom would not be considered evangelical, affirm that Jesus performed amazing deeds and even cast out demons. These facts are widely accepted because of the abundance of evidence. So Peter proclaimed the gospel. Peter provided evidence. And Peter also made some good arguments. We'll see in the very next verse, verse 23, this is what it says. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now as I stated earlier, it would have been easy for the Jews to see Jesus as a false prophet, a false messiah, because he was rejected by the Jewish leaders and he was condemned by them as a blasphemer. However, there's another reason that they could easily have thought him a false prophet, the fact that he died on a cross. Jews of that time associated those who died by crucifixion as ones who were under God's curse. This comes right from the Torah, in the in Deuteronomy 21:23 which claims that anyone who was hung on a pole is considered under God's curse and we know from writings of the time that the Jews thought of those who were crucified in this way that they were under God's curse if Jesus were under God's curse how could he be the Messiah and so Peter addresses this with evidence that God certainly accredited Jesus as his miracles demonstrated However, Peter also argues that Jesus died this way by the will of God, not because he was accursed, but so that the plans of God can be fulfilled through him. In fact, Peter goes on to demonstrate that King David prophesied of the Messiah's death and resurrection, proving that this has been God's plan all along. Peter proclaimed the gospel, the truth, so that people would respond and be saved Peter provided evidence so that people would have reason to believe the truth. And Peter provided arguments to help people overcome the intellectual obstacles that kept them from believing the truth. And lastly, Peter reasoned with them so that they would believe and be saved. We see this in verses 38 and forty through 40. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far far off, for all who the Lord our God will call. And catch this, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. God cares about truth and error, right and wrong. It's not about my truth or your truth. It's about the truth, God's truth. In light of the truth, in light of the evidence, do the wise thing, respond, turn to God. This was Peter's message. And this is the message that the church has been entrusted with for every subsequent generation. Friends, our study of Acts is only partly about understanding what God and his people have done in the past. The other part is that this knowledge ought to inform how we live as we seek to love God and love others in our context. And so with that in mind, here are some things that we need to consider based on our text today. And the first is this, that we need to stand up for truth. We need to stand up for truth in a culture that is largely dismissing or rejecting truth. Again, we live in a society where truth itself is in danger. If the very nature of truth is undermined, then anything that we proclaim as the truth will fall on deaf ears. And so we need to be willing to stand up for the truth of truth, that truth is that which corresponds to reality for all people, for all time, and in all places. Second, we need to stand up for the truth. Don't merely stand up for truth, although that's important, but stand up for the truth, for God's truth, the gospel. Don't be ashamed of it or afraid to proclaim it. In fact, we must. We must defend it. We see this in Scripture as well. 2,000 years ago, this, this, this call to stand up for the truth is there. We see this in Jude 3 jude writes dear friends although i was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share i felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to god's holy people in other words he wanted to celebrate their salvation he wanted to write about the joy of the gospel and instead he had to write and urge them to stand fast to contend for the truth of the gospel we see in Second uh, Corinthians 10, five again, Paul is writing here. He says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Friends, we have to stand up for the truth. Otherwise, it will be quickly dismissed, rejected out of hand, and people will not have an opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond. We need to stand up for the truth. We also need to proclaim the truth. The gospel must be proclaimed. God desires people to respond to the truth, but they cannot respond if they haven't heard it. A fact that Paul makes very clear in Romans ten thirteen through 14, where he writes, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Friends, it is you and I who must preach to them, proclaim to them the gospel. We have to proclaim the truth. And we also need to give people reasons to believe the truth. We must give people reasons to believe the truth. Our culture has at least as many reasons not to believe as the first century Jews had. We live in a world full of religious pluralism. We live in a world where atheism is a prominent position. We live in a world where Christians are are portrayed by horrible caricatures that obscure the truth of the gospel. We live in a post-Christian country that sees Christianity as a relic of the past without any relevance or benefit to modern life. Friends, we can't just proclaim the gospel. Like Peter and Paul and others, we need to give people reasons to believe the truth. And finally, we need to invite people to respond to the truth. God cares about truth and error, right and wrong. God cares about these things because there are consequences to what one does or does not do with the truth. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God desires that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. John 3.16 tells us that it was God's love that compelled him to send Jesus in the first place. If God desires people to respond to the truth, then we had better invite them to do so.